All right, welcome back everyone to Books for Boredom. I'm glad you could be here. Um, I hope everyone had a great week. Um, I hope everything was well. You're all healthy and safe. I personally am going through a little bit of like a um, medical anomaly right now. I'm just like breaking out in a lot of hives lately and it's not fun at all. So if I feel like this and super strung out, I really hope everyone else is doing really well. So <clears throat> let's get down to it. <laughs> um, last week, we left off with Colin in our book, The Good Girl. Um, we just got to the part where this man picks up Mia in a bar and obviously has some nefarious intentions to go with it. Um, and we're learning about our characters, we're learning about the mom, the dad, the detective, her friends. Um, it's a lot of exposition right now, but we're going to get into all of the, the gory details of what ends up happening soon enough. So, um, the only last thing that I want to mention before I start is I kind of want to shout out um, Ileana. I think that's how you pronounce your name. I hope. Um, I just got that from your email, so I hope it even is your name. Um, she sent me an email last week at the end of January and I just wanted to say something to you personally because I really really loved what you said um, she said that she found me through and then there were none and she's been using that book to read for class and she's taking like exams for it and she said that she doesn't really like the book when she reads it herself but with me, with this podcast, it helped her really understand it. And I think that's so amazing. And I hope that there are others of you out there. If you are on the younger side and you have, I don't know, any any books that you need to read for class coming up soon, if you know what they are, you are more than welcome to send me an email like she did and tell me to read any of them. Um, because, yeah, I find I told her in the email that it's really helpful to be able to read from someone like have someone else read something for you it um helps your reading comprehension a lot so you're not the one doing it and you it also gives you room to take notes while i'm reading it to you so if that's any way i can help i feel really blessed really grateful that you reached out to me and told me that um, it means a lot so yeah i just want to say same as i say every week be like her and send me a comment or um a any, anything you want anything that you want from me and i'll be happy to look over it so i have my email at booksforboredompod at gmail.com and i have my voice messages that should show up in my description every every time i post if not that's not the case let me know and i'll fix it um so yeah um thank you Ileana. i really appreciate it and i like i said in my email i hope everything goes well for your test um if you haven't taken it already good luck if you have i'd love to hear how you did um, okay, so I'm going to get into the next little chunk of our story, and I will see you guys next week. Eve. After. I'm looking through Mia's baby book when it hits me. In second grade, she had an imaginary friend named Chloe. It's there in the yellowing pages of the album, written in my own cursive in blue ink somewhere along the margin, sandwiched between a first broken bone and a wicked case of the flu that landed her in the emergency room. Her third grade picture covers part of the name Chloe, but I can make it out. 
I gaze at the third grade picture, this portrait of a happy-go-lucky girl still years away from braces and acne and Colin Thatcher. She flashes this toothless grin with a mop of flaxen hair engulfing her head like flames. She's splattered with freckles, something that has disappeared over time, and her hair is shades lighter than it will be eventually. The collar of her blouse is unfolded, and I'm certain her scrawny legs are clothed in a pair of hot pink leggings, likely a hand-me-down from Grace. There are snapshots lining the pages of the baby book. Christmas morning when Mia was two and Grace seven, sporting their matching pajamas while James's greasy hair stood on end. First days of school, birthday parties. I'm seated at the breakfast nook with the baby book spread open before me, eyeing cloth, diapers, and baby bottles and wanting it all back. I put in a call to Dr. Rhodes. To my surprise, she answers. When I tell her about the imaginary friend, Dr. Rhodes takes off in psychological analysis. Oftentimes, Mrs. Dennett, children create imaginary friends to compensate for loneliness or a lack of real friends in their lives. They often give these imaginary friends characteristics that they long for in their own lives, making them outgoing if the child is shy, for example, or a great athlete if a child's clumsy. Having an imaginary friend isn't necessarily a physiological problem. Assuming the friend disappears as the child matures. Dr. Rhodes, I respond. Mia named her imaginary friend Chloe. She grows quiet. That is interesting, she says, and I go numb. I become obsessed with the name Chloe. I spend the morning on the internet trying to learn everything there is to know about this name. It's a Greek name that means blooming, or blossoming, or verdant, or growth, depending on what website I search, but regardless, the words are synonymous with one another. This year, it's one of the more popular names, but back in 1990, it's ranked 212th among all American baby names, slipped in between Alejandra and Marie. There are approximately 10,500 people in the United States right now with the name Chloe. Sometimes you find the name with an umlaut over the E. Nearly 20 minutes is lost trying to find the meaning of those two dots over the vowel, and when I do, it's purpose simply to differentiate between the O and E sounds at the end of the name. I realize it's been a waste of time, sometimes without. I wonder how Mia spells it, though I don't dare ask. Where would Mia have come up with a name like Chloe? Perhaps it was on the birth certificate of one of Mia's prized Cabbage Patch kids, flown in from Babyland General Hospital. I go to the website. I'm astounded to find new skin tones for this year's babies, mocha and cream and latte, but no reference to a doll named Chloe. Maybe another child in Mia's second grade class? I research famous people named Chloe. Both Candace Bergen and Olivia Newton-John named their daughters Chloe. It's the first real name of author Toni Morrison, though I highly doubt Mia was reading Beloved in the second grade. There's Chloe Webb without the umlaut, though I'm certain this one is too old for Mia to have paid any attention to when she was eight. I could ask her. I could climb the steps and knock on the door of her bedroom and ask her. That's what James would do. He'd get to the bottom of this. I want to get to the bottom of this, but I don't want to violate Mia's trust. Years ago, I'd seek James's advice, his help, but that was years ago. I pick up the telephone, dial the numbers. The voice that greets me is kind, informal. Eve, he says, and I feel myself relax. Hello, Gabe. Colin, before. I lead her to a high-rise apartment building on Kenmore. We take the elevator to the seventh floor. 
Loud music pours out of another apartment as we make our way down the piss-stained carpeting to a door at the end of the hall. I open the door as she stands by. It's dark in the apartment. Only the stove light's on. I cross the parquet floors and flip on a lamp beside the sofa. The shadows disappear and are replaced with the contents of my meager living. Sports Illustrated magazines, a collection of shoes barricading the closet door, a half-eaten bagel on a paper plate on the coffee table. I watch silently as she judges me. It's quiet. A neighbor has made Indian food tonight, and the scent of curry chokes her. You okay? She asks because she hates the uncomfortable silence. She's probably thinking this was all a mistake, that she should leave. I walk to her and run a hand down the length of her hair, grasping the strands at the base of her skull. I stare at her, placing her upon a pedestal, and see in her eyes how she wishes, if only for a moment, to stay there. It's a place she hasn't been for quite some time. She forgot how it felt to have someone stare that way. She kisses me and forgets altogether about leaving. I press my lips against hers in a way that's new and familiar all at the same time. My touch is assertive. I've done this a thousand times. It puts her at ease. If I were awkward, refusing to make the first move, she'd have time to reconsider. But as it is, it happens too fast. And then, as quickly as it began, it's over. I change my mind, pull away, and she asks, what? Short of breath. What's wrong? She begs, trying to pull me back to her. Her hands drop to my waistband. Her drunken fingers clumsily work my belt. It's a bad idea, I say as I turn away from her. Why? Her voice begs. She grasps at my shirt in desperation. I move away, out of reach. And then it sinks in slowly. The rejection. She's embarrassed. She presses her hands to her face like she's hot, clammy. She drops onto the arm of a chair and tries to catch her breath. Around her, the room spins. I can see it in her expression. She isn't used to hearing the word no. She rearranges a crumpled shirt, runs sweaty hands through her hair, ashamed. I don't know how long we stay like that. It's just a bad idea, I say then, suddenly inspired to pick up my shoes. I throw them in the closet, one pair at a time. They smack the back wall. They fall into a messy pile behind the closet door. And then I close the door, leaving the mess where I can't see it. And then the resentment creeps in, and she asks, Why did you bring me here? Why did you bring me here if only to humiliate me? I picture us at the bar. I imagined my own greedy eyes when I leaned in and suggested, Let's get out of here. I told her my apartment was just down the street. We all but ran the entire way. I stare at her. It's not a good idea, I say again. She stands and reaches for her purse. Someone passes in the hallway, their laughter like a thousand knives. She tries walking, losing her balance. Where are you going? I ask, my body blocking the front door. She can't leave now. Home, she says. You're wasted. So? She challenges. She reaches for the chair to steady herself. You can't go, I insist. Not when I'm this close, I think. But what I say is, not like this. She smiles and says that's sweet. She thinks I'm worried about her. Little does she know. I couldn't care less. Gabe. After. 
Grace and me and Denon are sitting at my desk when I arrive, their backs turned in my direction. Grace couldn't look more uncomfortable. She plucks a pen from my desk and removes the chewed-up cap with a sleeve of her shirt. I smooth a paisley tie against my own, and as I make my way to them, I hear Grace muttering the words, slovenly appearance, and unbecoming, and spartan skin. I assume she's talking about me, and then I hear her say that Mia's corkscrew locks haven't seen a hairdryer in weeks. There are neglected bags beneath her eyes. Her clothes are rumpled and look like they should be cloaking the body of someone in junior high, a prepubescent boy, no less. She doesn't smile. Ironic, isn't it? Grace says. How I wish you'd snap at me. Call me a bitch, a narcissist, any of those unpleasant nicknames you had for me in the days before Colin Thatcher. But instead, Mia just stares. Good morning, I say, and Grace interrupts me, curtly, with, think we can get started, I have things to do today. Of course, I say, and then empty sugar packets into my coffee as slowly as I possibly can. I was hoping to talk to Mia, see if I can get some information from her. I don't see how she can help, Grace says. She reminds me of the amnesia. She doesn't remember what happened. I've asked Mia down this morning to see if we can jog her memory. See if Colin Thatcher told her anything inside that cabin that might be of value to the ongoing investigation. Since her mother wasn't feeling well, she sent Grace in her place as Mia's chaperone, and I can see, in Grace's eyes, that she'd rather be having dental work than sit here with Mia and me. I'd like to try and jog her memory, see if some pictures help. She rolls her eyes and says, God, detective, mugshots? We all know what Colin Thatcher looks like. We've seen the pictures. Mia has seen the pictures. Do you think she's not going to identify him? Not mugshots, I assure her, reaching into a desk drawer to yank something from beneath a stash of legal pads. She peers around the desk to get the first glimpse and is stumped by the 11 by 14 sketch pad I produce. It's a spiral-bound book. Her eyes peruse the cover for clues, but the words recycled paper give nothing away. Mia, however, is briefly cognizant of what neither she nor I know, but something passes through her, a wave of recollection, and then it's gone as soon as it came. I see it in her body language, the posturing straightening, leaning forward, hands reaching out blindly for the pad, drawing it into her. You recognize this? I ask, voicing the words that were on the tip of Grace's tongue. Mia holds it in her hands. She doesn't open it, but rather runs a hand over the textured cover. She doesn't say anything, and then, after a minute or so, she shakes her head. It's gone. She slouches back into her chair, and her fingers let go of the pad, allowing it to rest on her lap. Grace snatches it from her. She opens the book and is greeted by an influx of Mia's sketches. Eve told me once that Mia takes a sketch pad with her everywhere she goes, drawing anything from homeless men on the L to a car parked at the train station. It's her way of keeping a journal. Places she went, things she saw. Take this recycled sketch pad, for example. Trees and lots of them. A lake surrounded by trees. A homely little log cabin that, of course, we've all seen in the photos. A scrawny little tabby cat sleeping in a smattering of sun. None of this seems to surprise Grace. Not until she comes to the illustration of Colin Thatcher that literally jumps off the page to greet her, snuck in the middle of the sketch pad amidst trees in the snow-covered cabin. His appearance is bedraggled, his curly hair in complete disarray. The facial hair and tattered jeans and hooded sweatshirt surpass grunge and go straight to dirty. Mia had drawn a man, sturdy and tall. She applied herself to the eyes, 
shadowing and layering and darkening the pencil around them until these deep, leering headlights nearly force Grace to look away from the page. You drew this, you know, she states, compelling me to have a look at the page. She thrusts it into her hands to see. He's perched before a wood-burning stove, sitting cross-legged on the floor with his back to the flame. Mia runs her hand over the page and smudges the pencil a tad. She peers down at her fingertips and sees the remnants of lead, rubbing it between a finger and thumb. Does anything ring a bell? I ask, sipping from my mug of coffee. Is this? Mia hesitates. Him. If by him you mean the creep who kidnapped you, then yeah, Grace says. That's him. I sigh. That's Colin Thatcher. I show her a photograph. Not a mugshot like she's used to seeing, but a nice photo of him in his Sunday best. Mia's eyes go back and forth, making the connection. The curly hair, the hearty build, the dark eyes, the bristly beige skin. The way his arms are crossed before him, his face appearing to do anything to conceal a smile. You're quite an artist, I offer. Mia asks, and I drew this. I nod. They found the sketch pad at the cabin with yours and Colin's things. I assume it belongs to you. You brought it with you to Minnesota? Grace asks. Mia shrugs. Her eyes are locked on the images of Colin Thatcher. Of course she doesn't know. Grace knows she doesn't know, but she asks anyway. She's thinking the same thing as me. Here this creep is, whisking her off to some abandoned cabin in Minnesota. And she has the wherewithal to bring her sketch pad, of all things? What else did you bring? I don't know, she says, her voice on the verge of being inaudible. Well, what else did you find? Grace demands of me this time. I watch Mia, recording her nonverbal communication. The way her fingers keep reaching out to touch the images before her. The frustration that's slowly, silently taking over. Every time she tries to give up and push the images away, she goes back to them, as if begging of her mind. Think, just think. Nothing out of the ordinary. Grace gets mad. What does that mean? Clothes, food, weapons, guns, bombs, knives, an artist's easel, and a watercolor set? You ask me, she says, pilfering the sketch pad from Mia's hand. This is out of the ordinary. A kidnapper doesn't normally allow his abductee to draw the evidence on a cheap, recycled sketch pad. She turns to Mia and presents the obvious. If you sat still this long, Mia, long enough for you to draw this, then why didn't you run? She stares at Grace with a stark expression on her face. Grace sighs, completely exasperated, and looks at Mia like she should be locked up in a loony ward, like she has no grasp on reality, where she is, or why she's here, like she wants to bang her over the head with a blunt object and knock some sense into her. I come to her defense and say, maybe she was scared. Maybe there was nowhere to run. The cabin was in the middle of a vast wilderness, in northern Minnesota in the winter verges on a ghost town. There would have been nowhere to go. He might have found her, caught her, and then what? Then what would have happened? Grace sulks into her chair and flips through the pages of the sketch pad, seeing the barren trees and the never-ending snow, this picturesque lake surrounded by dense woodland, and she nearly passes by it altogether and then flips back, ripping the page from its spiral binding. Is that a Christmas tree? She implores, gawking at the nostalgic image on the inner corner of a page, the tearing of the paper making Mia leap from her seat. I watch Mia startle and then lay a hand briefly on hers to put her at ease. Oh yeah. I laugh, though there's no amusement in it. Yeah. 
I guess that would be considered out of the ordinary, wouldn't it? We found a Christmas tree. Charming, really, if you ask me. Colin. Before. She's fighting the urge to fall asleep when the call comes in. She's said about a thousand times that she needs to go. I've assured her that she doesn't. It took every bit of self-control to pull away from her. To turn my back to her pleading eyes and force myself to forget it. There's just something wrong with screwing the girl you're about to snatch. But somehow or other, I convinced her to stay. She thinks it's for her own good. When she's sober, I said I'd walk her down for a cab. Apparently, she bought that. The phone rings. She doesn't jump. She looks at me with the implication that it must be a girl. Who else would call in the middle of the night? It's approaching 2am, and as I move into the kitchen to take the call, I see her rise from the couch. She tries to fight the lethargy that's taken over. Everything set? Dalmar wants to know. I know nothing about Dalmar other than he just hopped off a boat and is blacker than anything I've ever seen. I've done jobs for Dalmar before. Larceny and harassment. Never kidnapping. Uh-huh. I peek out at the girl who's standing awkwardly in the living room. She's waiting for me to finish up the call. Then she'll split. I move away. I get as far away as I can. I carefully slide a semi-automatic from the drawer. 2.15, he says. I know where to meet. Some dark corner of the underground where only homeless men wander at this time of night. I check my watch. I'm supposed to pull up behind a gray minivan. They grab the girl and leave the cash behind. It's that easy. I don't even have to get out of the car. 2.15, I say. The Dennett girl is all but 120 pounds. She's lost in the midst of insobriety and a splitting headache. This will be easy. She's already saying that she's going to go when I come back into the living room. She's headed to the front door. I stop her with a single arm around her waist. I draw her away from the door, my arm touching flesh. You are not going anywhere. No, really, she says. I have to work in the morning. She giggles, like maybe this is funny. Some kind of come on. But there's the gun. She sees it. And in that moment, things change. There's a moment of recognition. Of her mind registering the gun. Of her figuring out what the fuck is about to happen. Her mouth parts and out comes a word. Oh. And it's almost an afterthought, really. When she sees the gun and says... What are you doing with that? She backs away from me, bumping into the couch. You need to come with me. I step forward, closing the gap. Where? She asks. When my hands come down on her, she jerks away. I unknot the arms and reel her in. Don't make this harder than it has to be. What are you doing with that gun? She snaps. She's calmer than I expect her to be. She's concerned, but not screaming, not crying. She's got her eyes bound to the gun. You just need to come with me. I reach out and grasp her arm. She's trembling. She slips away, but I hold her tight, twisting her arm. She cries out in pain. She shoots me a dirty look, hurt and unexpected. She tells me to let go, to keep my hands off her. There's a superiority in her voice that pisses me off, like she's the one running the show. She tries to rip free, but finds she can't. I won't let her. Shut up, I say. I grip her wrist tighter and I know it hurts. My grasp is hurting her, leaving red finger marks along the flesh. This is a mistake, she barks. You've got this all wrong. There's this strange composer to her, though her eyes remain glued to the gun. I can't tell you how many times I've heard that line. 
Every so-called victim says I've made a mistake. Shut up, I snapped this time, with more authority. I back her against the wall, bumping into a lamp as I do. It crashes to the floor, hitting the parquet with a nasty thud. The light bulb shatters, but the lamp doesn't break. I hold her there. I tell her to shut up. I say it over and over again. Just shut the fuck up. She isn't saying a word. She's got on her poker face, though inside she must be going ballistic. Okay, she says then, as if this is her choice, as if she has any say in the matter. She nods her head scornfully. She'll come with me. Her eyes are steady. Tired, but steady. Pretty, I think. She has pretty blue eyes. But then I force the thought from my mind. I can't think about shit like that. Not right now. Not before I hand her over to Delmar. I need to finish the job. Be through with it before I start to second-guess myself. With the gun pressed to her head, I tell her how it's going to be. She's going to come with me. If she screams, I'll pull the trigger. It's that simple. But she's not going to scream. Even I can see that. My purse, she says as we step over the bag she dropped to the floor when we made our way into the apartment hours ago, floundering with each other's clothes. Forget your fucking purse, I snarl. I drag her into the hallway, slam the door shut. It's cold outside. The wind is sailing in from the lake, blowing her hair about her face. She's freezing. My arm is wrapped tightly around her torso. Not for warmth. I don't give a damn if she's cold. I don't want her to run away. I hold her so tight that her left side rubs against my right side, and at times our feet collide and we trip. We walk quickly, hurrying to the car parked on Ainsley. Hurry up, I say more than once, though we both know it's me that slows us down. I look behind, make sure we're not being trailed. She's staring at the ground, trying to avoid the cutting wind. Her coat has been abandoned in the apartment. Goosebumps line her skin. Her flimsy shirt fails to ward off the cold, early October air. There's no one on the street tonight but us. I open the door for the girl and she gets in. I don't take the time to fasten my seatbelt. I start the car and take off down the street, doing a U-turn on Ainsley and heading the wrong way on a one-way street. The streets are all but empty. I drive too fast, knowing that I shouldn't, but wanting this to be through. She's silent, her breathing steady. She's strangely sedate. Though out of the corner of my eye, I see her shake, the cold, the fear. I wonder what she thinks. She doesn't plead with me. She huddles into a ball on the passenger seat of the pickup and stares out at the city. It won't be long before we pull up behind the minivan and Dalmar's men will tear her from the truck, their dirty hands all over her. Dalmar has a temper. I don't know what they have planned for the girl. Ransom, that's all I know. Hold her for ransom until her father coughs up a substantial debt. When the debt is paid, I don't know what they'll do. Kill her? Send her home? I doubt it. And if they do, it's only after Dalmar and his guys have had a little fun with her, made it worth their while. My mind starts racing in a million different directions, and now I'm thinking what will happen if I get caught. It'll all be for nothing. Kidnapping carries it to a 30-year sentence. I know, I checked. I thought about that more than once, after Dalmar hired me. But it's one thing to think about it, and another to do it. Now here I am, with a girl in the car, thinking about 30 years in the pen. She won't look at me. At a stoplight, I stare at her. She stares ahead, and I know she sees me. I know she can feel my eyes on her. She holds her breath. She fights the urge to cry. I drive with one hand, the gun on my lap in the other. It's not so much that I give a shit about the girl. 
because I don't. It's that I'm wondering what happens when word leaks back home that I did this, when my name is attached to a kidnapping murder. And it would be. Dalmar would never sign his name to this. He'd set me up. If and when this goes bad, I'll be the stooge, the scapegoat, the one on the chopping block. The light turns green. I get off on Michigan. A bunch of drunken kids stand on the corner waiting for their bus. They're monkeying around, being stupid. One of them stumbles from curb. I swerve out of the way and almost hit him. Idiot, I mutter beneath my breath. He gives me the finger. I consider my backup plan. I always have a backup plan for if and when things get messy. I've just never had to use it. I check the gas gauge. There's enough to get us out of the city, at least. I should get off at Wacker. The red numbers on the truck's dashboard read 212. Damar and his guys are in place, waiting. He could do it by himself, but he wouldn't. Damar never wants to get his hands dirty. He finds someone, some outcast like me, to do the shit work, so he can sit back and watch. This way, when things go south, he's clean of any misdeeds. No fingerprints at the scene, his face omitted from any photographic evidence. He lets the rest of us, his operatives, he calls us, like we're in the damn CIA, take the fall. There's probably four of them in the van, four thugs just waiting to restrain this girl who sits still beside me when she could be fighting for her life. My hands slip on the steering wheel. I'm sweating like a pig. I wipe them on my jeans and then I pound a fist against the steering wheel and the girl lets out a stifled cry. I should get off at Wacker, but I don't. I keep driving. I know this is stupid. I know everything that can go wrong, but I do it anyway. I peer in the rearview mirror, make sure that I'm not being trailed, and then I floor it, down Michigan to Ontario, and I'm on 90 before the clock ever reaches 2.15. I don't say anything to the girl because there isn't anything I could say that she'd believe. I'm not sure at what point it happens. It's somewhere as we're driving away from the city, as the skyline starts to disappear into the blackness, as the buildings get swallowed up by the distance. She squirms in her seat, the composure starting to wane. Her eyes move, out the side window, turning around and staring out the rearview window as the city melts. As if someone finally flipped the switch, and now she realizes what the hell is happening. Where are we going? She demands, her voice becoming hysterical. The poker face has given way to gaping eyes, to ruddy skin. I see it in the glow of streetlights we fly past, illuminating her face every five seconds or so. For a split second, she begs me to let her go. I tell her to shut up. I don't want to hear it. By now, she's crying. Now the waterworks have begun, and she's a blubbering mess, begging me to let her go. She asks again, Where are we going? And I pick up the gun. I can't stand the sound of her voice, blaring and shrill. I need her to shut up. I point the gun at her and tell her to shut the fuck up, and she does. She's quiet, but she continues to cry, wiping her nose on a too-short sleeve as we soar out of the city and into suburbia. Trees swapping places with skyscrapers, the blue line snaking down the middle of the road. Eve. After. Mia sits at the kitchen table, holding a legal-sized manila envelope with her name written on the front in a very masculine, all-caps script. I prepare dinner for Mia and myself. The TV is on in the next room for background noise, but the sound drifts into the kitchen, compensating for the silence between us. Mia doesn't seem to notice. 
but these days, it makes me a nervous wreck, and so I make idle conversation to offset the silence. Would you like chicken breast with your salad? I ask, and she shrugs. Whole wheat rolls or white? I ask, but she doesn't respond. I'll make the chicken, I say. Your father would like chicken, but we both know that James will not be home. What's that? I ask, motioning to the item in her hands. What's what? She asks. The envelope. Oh, she says. This. I set a frying pan on the stove, slamming it down without intent. She starts, and I'm quick to apologize, filled with shame. Oh, Mia, honey, I didn't mean to startle you, I say, and it takes a moment for her to settle, to attach the rapid heartbeat and beads of sweat to the sound of the frying pan. She says that she doesn't know why she feels like this. She says that she used to enjoy when darkness set in, when the outside world changed. She describes it for me, the way the streetlights and buildings twinkled in the night sky. She says that she liked the anonymity of it, and all the possibilities that developed when the sun went to sleep. But now the darkness terrifies her. All the nameless things on the other side of the silk drapes. Mia never used to be afraid. She would wander city streets well after dark and feel perfectly safe. She confides that she often found solace in deafening traffic, obtrusive car horns, and sirens that blared at all times of the night. But now the sound of a frying pan rattles her nerves. I'm overly apologetic, and Mia tells me that it's all right. She listens to the television in the other room. The evening news has given way to a seven o'clock sitcom. Mia? I ask, and she turns to me. What? She asks. The envelope. I motion towards it, and it's then that she remembers. She turns it over in her hands. That policeman gave it to me, she says. I'm slicing a tomato. Detective Hoffman? Yes. Mia usually only comes downstairs when James is gone. The rest of the time she hides. I'm certain this room must remind her of her childhood. The room is the same as it's been for a dozen years or more. The paint, the color of butter, the mood lighting. Candles are lit. The track lighting is dimmed. The table is a dark pedestal table with scrolled legs and matching upholstered chairs where she spent too much time under a microscope as a child. I'm certain she feels like a child. Unable to be left alone, having to be cooked for and constantly watched. Her independence is gone. Yesterday, she asked when she could go home, to her own apartment, and all I replied was, in time. James and I don't let her leave the house, not unless we're going to see Dr. Rhodes or to the police station. Running errands is out of the question. For days, the doorbell rang from dusk to dawn, men and women with microphones and video cameras awaiting us on the front stoop. Mia Dennett, we'd like to ask you a few questions, they'd demand, forcing their microphones at her, until I told her not to open the door and started ignoring the chime altogether. The telephone rang relentlessly, and those infrequent times, I did answer it. The only thing I ever said was, no comment. After a day or so, I started letting it go straight to voicemail, and then, when the ringing became too much to bear, I unplugged the phone from the wall. Well, aren't you going to open it? I remind Mia. She slides her finger under the flap and lifts it open. There's a single sheet of paper inside. She draws it carefully from the envelope and takes a look. I set the knife on a cutting board and saunter to the table beside her, feigning only a little interest when I'm absolutely certain I'm the more attentive of us two. It's a photocopy, a drawing from a sketch pad with circles lining the top where the original was ripped from its spiral binding. It's a drawing of a person, a woman. 
I can only assume from the longish hair. I drew this, Mia says to me, but I slip the drawing from her hands. May I? I ask, dropping into the chair beside her. Why do you say that? I ask, my hands beginning to tremble, my stomach turning somersaults inside me. Mia's been drawing for as long as I can remember. She's a talented artist. I asked her once why she loved to draw, why it was something with which she was so enamored. She told me that she drew because it was the only way she could bring about change. She could turn geese to swans or a cloudy day to sun. It was a place where reality didn't have to exist. But this picture is something else entirely. The eyes are perfectly circular, the smile the sort she learned to draw in grade school. The eyelashes are upwardly pointing lines, the face is malformed. It came from the same notebook, the one Detective Hoffman had, the one with my drawings. You didn't draw this, I say with absolute certainty. Maybe ten years ago when you were first learning, but not now. This is much too ordinary for you. It's mediocre at best. A timer beeps and I rise to my feet. Mia reaches for the page to have a second look. Why would the policeman give this to me then? She asks, turning the envelope over in her hands. I tell her that I don't know. I'm setting whole wheat rolls onto a cookie sheet that will bake in the oven when Mia asks, Then who? Who drew this? On the stove, the chicken sears. I lower the cookie sheet into the bottom of the oven. I flip the chicken and begin dicing a cucumber as if perhaps it was Colin Thatcher himself lying on the cutting board before me. I shrug my shoulders. That picture, I say, trying hard not to cry. Mia sits at the table, examining that picture, and I see it. Clear as day. The long hair, the circular eyes, the U-shaped smile. That picture, I say, is you. Colin, before. We're on the Kennedy before I ever bother to turn on the heat. Somewhere into Wisconsin, I turn on the radio. Static blares out of the rear speakers. The girl is watching out the side window. She doesn't say a thing. I'm certain a pair of headlights has followed us the entire length of Interstate 90, but they disappeared just outside of Janesville, Wisconsin. I exit the interstate. The road is dark and deserted and seems to lead to nowhere. I pull into a gas station. There isn't an attendant on duty. I kill the engine and get out to fill up the tank, bringing the gun with me. I've got my eyes on her the entire time when I see a glow from inside the truck. The light from a cell phone that's come to life. How could I be so stupid? I thrust open the door, scare the shit out of her. She drums, tries to hide the phone under her shirt. Give me the phone, I snap. Ticked I forgot to ditch her phone before we left. The light from the gas station fills the truck. She's a damn mess. Makeup down her face, her hair, a catastrophe. Why? She asks. I know she's not this dumb. Just give it to me. Why? Just give it to me. I don't have it, she lies. Give me the fucking phone, I yell, as I reach over and yank it from beneath her shirt. She tells me to get my hands off her. I check the phone. She got as far as finding the contact list, but that's all. As I go to fill up the tank, I make sure it's off, then dump it into the trash. Even if the cops trace the signal, we'll be nowhere around when they do. I scavenge the back of the truck for something. Rope, an extension cord, a piece of fucking string. I bind her hands together, tight enough that she cries out in pain. Try that again, I say when I get back into the truck, and I'll kill you. I slam the door and start the engine. There's only one thing that's certain. When I didn't show up with the girl, 
Delmar has sent everyone he knows after us. By now, they've torn apart my apartment. There's a hit out on both of our heads. There isn't a chance in hell I'm going back. If this girl is dumb enough to try, she'll be dead. But I won't let that happen. She'll tell them where I am before they kill her, but I'll kill her first. I've already done enough good deeds. We drive through the night. She closes her eyes only for a couple of seconds, then jerks them open again and searches the truck to realize that it isn't a nightmare. It's all real. Me. A dirty truck. It's vinyl seats torn. Cotton falling out. The static on the radio. The endless fields and the dark night sky. The gun sits on my lap. I know she doesn't have the guts to reach for it and my hands clutch the steering wheel as I drive slower now that I know we're not being followed. She asks once why I'm doing this, her voice shaking as she speaks. Why are you doing this to me? She asks. That's somewhere around Madison. She'd gone all this time in silence, listening to some Catholic priest ramble on and on about original sin, his voice cutting out every third or fourth word. And then all of a sudden, why are you doing this to me? And it's the to me part that really rubs me the wrong way. She thinks it's all about her. It doesn't have a thing to do with her. She's a pawn. A puppet. A sacrificial lamb. Don't worry about it, I say. She doesn't like that answer. You don't even know me, she accuses in a patronizing way. I know you, I say, with a fleeting look her way. It's dark in the car. I can't see more than an outline, obscured by the blackness outside the window. What did I do to you? What did I ever do to you, she pleads. She never did a thing to me. I know it. She knows it. But I tell her to shut up anyway. Enough. And when she doesn't, I say it again. Just shut up. The third time, I scream, just shut the fuck up. The gun flailing about and pointing her way. I swerve off the road and slam on the brakes. I step from the truck and I already she's screaming at me to leave her alone. I reach in the bed of the truck for a roll of duct tape, tear off a piece with my teeth. There's a chill in the air. The sound of the occasional semi-truck soaring down the road in the middle of the night. What are you doing? She asks, her feet kicking at me the minute I open the door. She kicks hard and gets me in the gut. She's a fighter, I'll give her that. But the only thing it does is make me pissed. I force my way into the truck, slap the duct tape over her moving lips and say, I told you to shut up. And she does. I get back into the truck and slam the door, pulling blindly out into the interstate the wheels kicking up gravel from the shoulder of the road. It's no wonder, then, that it takes a good hundred or so miles for her to tell me she has to pee, to get the guts to lay a trembling hand on my arm and get my attention. What? I snap, pulling my arm away from her hand. It's approaching dawn. She's wiggling in her seat. There's a sense of urgency in her eyes. I rip off the duct tape and she lets out a moan. It hurt. It hurt like hell. Good, I think to myself. That'll teach her to keep her mouth shut when I tell her to. I have to use the bathroom, she mumbles, afraid. I pull into the gravel parking lot of some rundown truck stop outside. Oh, Claire. The sun is beginning to rise over a dairy farm to the east. A herd of Holsteins grazes along the road. It's going to be a sunny day, but it's damn cold. October. The trees are changing. In the parking lot, I hesitate. It's all but empty. Only one car. A rusty old station wagon with political bumper stickers plastered across the back. The rear headlight held to the car with packaging tape. My heart races. I stick the gun into the seat of my pants. It's not like I haven't been thinking about this since we left. I knew this was something I'd have to do. By now, the girl was supposed to be with Dalmar, and I figured I'd be trying hard to forget what I'd done. I didn't plan for this. But if this is going to work, 
there are things we need, like money. I have some money on me, but not enough for this. I emptied the girl's wallet before we left. Credit cards are out of the question. I pull a knife from the glove box. Before I cut the girl's restraints, I say, You stay with me. Don't try anything stupid. I tell her she can use the bathroom when I say so, only when I say it's okay. I cut her rope. Then I cut two feet of spare rope and stuff it into a coat pocket. The girl looks ridiculous as she steps from the truck in the wrinkled shirt that doesn't even reach all the way to her wrists. She crosses her arms across herself and ties them into a knot. She shudders from the cold. Her hair falls down into her face. She keeps her head bent, eyes on the gravel. Her forearms are bruised, right across from some stupid Chinese tattoo on her inner arm. There's only one lady working, not a single customer. Just as I thought. I wrap my arm around the girl and pull her towards me, trying to make it seem like we're close. Her feet hesitate and fall out of sync with mine. She trips, but I stop her before she falls. My eyes threaten her to behave. My hands on her are not a sign of intimacy. They're a show of force. She knows it, but the lady behind the register does not. We walk up and down the aisles, make sure as hell we're the only ones in the place. I grab a box of envelopes. I check the bathroom to make sure it's empty. I make sure there isn't a window the girl could jump out of. And then I tell her to pee. The woman at the register gives me a strange look. I roll my eyes and tell her the girl's had too much to drink. Apparently she buys it. It seems to take forever for the girl to pee, and when I peek inside again, she's standing before the mirror, splashing water on her face. She stares at her reflection for a long time. Let's go, I say after a minute. And then we head to the register to pay for the envelopes. But we don't pay for the envelopes. The lady's distracted, watching old 1970s reruns on the 12-inch TV. I look around, make sure there's no cameras in the place. And then I come up behind her, pull the gun from the seat of my pants, and tell her to empty the fucking register. I don't know who panics more. The girl freezes, her face filled with fear. Here I am, with the barrel of the gun pressed against some middle-aged lady's gray hair, and she's a witness. An accomplice. The girl starts asking what I'm doing, over and over again. What are you doing? She cries. I tell her to shut up. The lady is begging for her life. Please don't hurt me. Please just let me go. I shove her forward, tell her again to empty the register. She opens it and starts jamming stacks of cash into a plastic shopping bag with a big smiley face and the words, Have a nice day. I tell the girl to look out the window. Tell me if anyone's coming. She nods submissively, like a child. No, she chokes between tears. No one. And then she asks, What are you doing? I press the gun harder, tell the lady to hurry up. Please, please don't hurt me. The quarters too, I say. There are rolls of them. You got any stamps, I ask? Her hands start to move to a drawer and I bark out, Don't touch a damn thing. Tell me. You got any stamps? Because for all I know, there's a semi-automatic in that drawer. She whimpers at the sound of my voice. In the drawer, she cries. Don't hurt me, she begs. She tells me about her grandchildren. Two of them, a boy and a girl. The only name I catch is Zelda. What kind of stupid name is Zelda, anyway? I reach into the drawer and find a book of stamps and toss them into the shopping bag, which I yank from her hands and give it to the girl. Hold that, I say. Just stand there and hold it. I let the gun point at her for a split second, just so she knows I'm not screwing around. She lets out a cry and ducks as if maybe, just maybe, I actually shot her. I tie the lady to a chair with a rope from my pocket, then I shoot the phone for good measure. Both of the women scream. I can't have her calling the cops too soon. 
There's a pile of sweatshirts beside the front door. I grab one and tell the girl to put it on. I'm sick and tired of watching her shiver. She slips it over her head and static takes control of her hair. It's about the ugliest shirt I've ever seen. I grab a couple extra sweatshirts, a few pairs of pants, long johns and some socks, and a couple stale donuts for the ride. And then we go. In the truck, I bind the girl's hands once again. She's still crying. I tell her to either figure out a way to shut up or I'll figure it out for her. Her eyes drop to the roll of duct tape on the dashboard and she goes quiet. She knows I'm not screwing around. I grab an envelope and fill out the address. I stuff as much money as I can in there and stick a stamp in the corner. I jam the rest of the money in my pocket. We drive around until I find a big blue mailbox and drop the envelope inside. The girl's watching me, wondering what the hell I'm doing. But she doesn't ask, and I don't say. When I catch her eye, I say, Don't worry about it. And then I think, It's none of your fucking business. It's not perfect. It's nowhere perfect. But for now, it will have to do. Eve. After. I've gotten used to the sight of police cars stalled outside my home. There are two of them there, day and night, four uniformed guards keeping an eye on Mia. They sit in the front seat of the police cruisers, drinking coffee and eating sandwiches that they take turns picking up from the deli. I stare from the bedroom windows, peering between the plantation blinds that I've split apart with a hand. They look like schoolboys to me, younger than my own children, but they carry guns and nightsticks and peer up at me with binoculars and just stare. I convince myself that they can't see me when, night after night, I dim the lights to change into a pair of flannel pajamas, but the truth is that I don't know. Mia sits on the front porch every day, seemingly indifferent to the bitter cold. She stares at the snow that surrounds our home like the moat of a castle. She watches the dormant trees lurch back and forth in the wind, but she doesn't notice the police cars, the four men who study her all hours of the day. I've begged her not to leave the porch, and she's agreed, though sometimes she makes her way across the snow and onto the sidewalk, where she strolls by the homes of Mr. and Mrs. Pewter and the Donaldson family. While one of the cars crawls along behind her, the other sends an officer to get me, and I come running out the door with bare feet to snatch up my wandering daughter. Mia, honey, where are you going? I've heard myself ask countless times, gathering her by the shirt sleeves and reeling her in. She never wears a coat, and her hands are ice cold. She never knows where she's going, but she's always following me home, and I thank the officers as we pass by on our way into the kitchen for a cup of warm milk. She shivers as she drinks it, and when she's through, she says she's going to bed. She's felt unwell for the past week, always longing to be in bed. But today, for some reason, she sees the police cars. I pull out of the garage and onto the street, en route to Dr. Rhodes's office for Mia's first round of hypnosis. It's a moment of lucidity that passes by as she gazes out the window and asks, What are they doing here? As if they had arrived right then and there in that single lucid moment. Keeping us safe, I say diplomatically. What I mean to say is keeping you safe, but I don't want her to fear the reason she's not. From what? She asks, turning her head to watch the policeman through the back door. One starts his car and follows up down the road. The other lingers behind to keep an eye on the house while we're gone. There's nothing to be afraid of, I respond in lieu of an answer to her question, and she gratefully accepts it, turning around to watch out the front window and forgetting altogether that we're being trailed. We drive down the neighborhood street. It's quiet. The kids have returned to school after two weeks of winter break and no longer loiter in their front lawn building, snowmen and 
tossing snowballs at one another with high, shrieking laughter, sounds that are foreign in our uncommunicative home. Christmas lights remain on homes, those inflatable Santas unplugged and lying dead in mounds of snow. James didn't take the time to decorate the exterior of the house this year, though I went all out on the inside just in case. Just in case Mia came home and there was cause to celebrate. She's agreed to hypnosis. It didn't take much coaxing. These days, Mia agrees to most everything. James is against the idea. He thinks hypnosis is some bogus science equivalent to reading poems and astrology. I don't know what I believe, though I'll be damned if I don't give it a try. If it helps Mia remember one split second of those missing months, it's worth the exorbitant cost and the time spent in the waiting room of Dr. Avery Rhodes. What I understood of hypnosis a week ago was negligible. After awakening at night to research hypnosis on the internet, I became enlightened. Hypnosis, as I've come to understand it, is a very relaxed, trance-like state similar to daydreaming. This will allow Mia to become less inhibited and tune out the rest of the world to allow herself, with the doctor's help, to arouse the memories she's lost. Under hypnosis, the subject becomes highly suggestible and can recall information that the mind has locked in a vault. By hypnotizing Mia, Dr. Rhodes will be dealing directly with the subconscious, that part of the brain that's hidden Mia's memories from her. The goal is to put Mia into a state of deep relaxation so her conscious mind more or less goes to sleep and Dr. Rhodes can deal with the subconscious. For Mia's sake, the goal is to regain all or some part, some minute details even, of her time in the cabin so that through therapy she can come to terms with her abduction and heal. For the investigation's sake, however, Detective Hoffman is desperate for information, for any details or clues that Colin Thatcher might have aired in the cabin that would help police find the man who did this to her. When we arrive at Dr. Rhodes's office, I, at James's insistence, am allowed inside. He wants me to keep an eye on the nutcase, what he calls Dr. Rhodes, in case she tries to screw with Mia's head. I sit in an armchair out of the way while Mia squeamishly sprawls out on the couch. Textbooks line floor-to-ceiling bookshelves on the southernmost wall. There's a window that faces the parking lot. Dr. Rhodes keeps the blinds closed, allowing an only a scant amount of light, so there's an abundance of privacy. The room is dark and discreet. The secrets revealed inside the walls absorbed by the burgundy paint and oak wainscoting. The room is drafty. I pull my sweater tightly around my body and hug myself as Mia's conscious mind begins to get drowsy. The doctor says, We'll start off with the simple things, with what we know to be true, and see where that leads. It doesn't come back chronologically. It doesn't even come back sensibly, and to me, long after we escape into the piercing winter day, it's a puzzle. I had imagined that hypnosis would be able to unlock the vault, and there, in that very instant, all the memories would topple out onto the faux Persian rug so that Mia, the doctor, and I could hover over and dissect them. But that's not the way it happens at all. For the limited time Mia is under hypnosis, maybe twenty minutes, but no more, the doors open, and Dr. Rose, with a kind, harmonious voice, is trying to pry away the cookie's layer to get at the cream filling. They come off in crumbs. The rustic feel of the cabin with the knotty pine paneling and exposed beams, static on a car radio, the sound of Beethoven's Furalise spotting a moose. Who's in the car, Mia? I'm not sure. Are you there? Yes. Are you driving the car? No. Who's driving the car? I don't know. It's dark. What time of day is it? Early morning. The sun is just beginning to rise. You can see out the window? Yes. Do you see stairs? Yes. And the moon? 
Yes. A full moon? No. She shakes her head. A half moon. Do you know where you are? On a highway. It's a small two-lane highway surrounded by woods. Are there other cars? No. Do you see street signs? No. Do you hear anything? Static. From the radio. There's a man speaking, but his voice, there's static. Mia's lying on the couch with her legs crossed at the ankles. It's the first time I've seen her relax in the last two weeks. Her arms are folded against a bare midriff, her chunky cream sweater having hugged up an inch or two when she laid down, as if she's been placed in the casket. Can you hear what the man is saying? Dr. Rhodes asks from where she sits on a maroon armchair beside Mia. The woman is the epitome of together, not a wrinkle in her clothing, not a hair out of place. The sound of her voice is monotonous. It could lull me to sleep. Temperatures in the 40s, plenty of sun. The weather forecast? It's a disc jockey. The sound's coming from the radio, but the static. The front speakers don't work. The voice comes from the back seat. Is there someone in the back seat, Mia? No, it's just us. Us? I can see his hands in the darkness. He drives with two hands holding the steering wheel so tightly. What else can you tell me about him? Mia shakes her head. Can you see what he's wearing? No, but you can see his hands. Yes. Is there anything on his hands? A ring? A watch? Anything? I don't know. What can you tell me about his hands? They're rough. You can see that. You can see that his hands are rough. I scoot to the edge of my seat, hanging on to Mia's every last muted word. I know that Mia, the old Mia, pre-Colin Thatcher, would never have wanted me to hear this conversation. This question she doesn't answer. Is he hurting you? Mia twitches on the couch, pushing aside the question. Dr. Rhodes asks again. Did he hurt you, Mia? There, in that car. Or maybe before. There's no response. The doctor moves on. What else can you tell me about the car? But Mia states instead, This wasn't... This wasn't supposed to happen. What wasn't, Mia? She asks. What wasn't supposed to happen? It's all wrong, Mia replies. She's disoriented. Her vision's cluttered. Random memory is running adrift in her mind. What is all wrong? There's no reply. Mia, what is all wrong? The car? Something about the car? But Mia says nothing. Not at first, anyway. But then she sucks her breath and violently and claims, It's my fault. It's all my fault. And it takes every bit of willpower I have not to rush from my seat and embrace my child. I want to tell her that no, it's not. It's not her fault. I can see the way it grieves her. The way her facial features tense up, her flattened hands turn to fists. I did this, she says. This is not your fault, Mia, Dr. Rhodes states. Her voice is pensive, soothing. I grip the arms of the chair in which I sit and force myself to remain calm. This is not your fault, she repeats. And later, after the session's through, she explains to me in private that victims almost always blame themselves. She says that often this is the case with rape victims, the reason that nearly 50% of rapes go unreported because the victim feels certain it was her fault. If only she had never gone to such and such bar. If only she had never talked to such and such stranger. If only she hadn't worn such suggestive attire. Mia, she explains, is experiencing a natural phenomenon that psychologists and sociologists have been studying for years. Self-blame. Self-blame can, of course, be destructive, she says to me later as Mia waits in the waiting room for me to catch up. When taken to the extreme, 
but it can also prevent victims from becoming vulnerable in the future, as if this is supposed to make me feel better. Mia, what else did you see? The doctor inquires when Mia has settled. She's taciturn initially. The doctor asks again, Mia, what else do you see? This time Mia responds, a house. Tell me about it. It's small. What else? A deck. A small deck with steps that lead down into the woods. It's a log cabin. Dark wood. You can barely see it for all the trees. It's old. Everything about it is old. The furniture, the appliances. Tell me about the furniture. It sags. The couch is plaid. Blue and white plaid. Nothing about the house is comfortable. There's an old wooden rocking chair. Lamps that barely light the room. A tiny table with wobbly legs and a plaid vinyl tablecloth that you'd bring to a picnic. The hardwood floors creak. It's cold. It smells. Like what? Mothballs. Later that night, as we hover in the kitchen after dinner, James asks me what in the hell the smell of mothballs has to do with anything. I tell him that it's progress, albeit slow progress, but it's a start. Something that yesterday Mia couldn't remember. I, too, had longed for something phenomenal. One session of hypnosis and Mia would be healed. Dr. Rhodes sensed my frustration when we were leaving her office and explained to me that we needed to be patient. These things take time, and to rush Mia will do more harm than good. James doesn't buy it. He's certain it's only a ploy for more money. I watch him yank a beer from the refrigerator and head into his office to work while I clean the dinner dishes, noticing, for the third time this week, that Mia's plate has barely been touched. I stare at the spaghetti noodles hardening on the earthenware dishes and remember that spaghetti is Mia's favorite meal. I start a list and begin to archive things one by one. The rough hands, for example, or the weather forecast. I spend the night on the internet rummaging around for useful information. The last time the temperatures in northern Minnesota were in the 40s was in the last week of November, though the temperatures toyed around in the 30s and 40s from Mia's disappearance until after Thanksgiving Day. After that, they plunged into the 20s and below, and likely won't creep up to 40 for some time. There was a half moon on September 30th, October 14th, and another on the 29th. There was one on November 12th, and another on the 28th. Though Mia couldn't be certain that the moon was exactly at half, and so the dates are only suggestions. Moose are common in Minnesota, especially in the winter. Beethoven wrote Fear Elise around 1810, though Elise was actually supposed to be Teresa a woman he was to marry in the same year. Before I go to bed, I pass by the room in which Mia sleeps. I silently open the door and stand there, watching her, the way she draped across the bed, the blanket thrust from her body at some point in the night where it lies in a puddle on the floor. The moon welcomes itself into the bedroom through the slats on the plantation blinds, streaking Mia with traces of light across her face, down a set of knit eggplant pajamas, the right leg of which is hiked up to the knee and tossed across an extra pillow. It's the only time these days when Mia's at peace. I move across the room to cover her and feel my body lower to the edge of the bed. Her face is serene, her soul calm, and though she's a woman, I still envision my blissful little girl long before she was taken away from me. Mia's being here feels too good to be true. I would sit here all night if I could, to convince myself that it isn't a dream, that when I wake in the morning, Mia, or Chloe, will still be here. As I climb into bed beside James's blazing body, the bulk of the down comforter actually making him sweat, I wonder what good this information, 
the weather forecast and phases of the moon actually does me, though I've stuck it in a folder beside the dozens of meanings for the name Chloe. Why, I don't know for certain. But I tell myself that any details notable enough for me to recount under hypnosis are important to me. Any scrap of information to explain to me what happened to my daughter inside the log walls of that rural Minnesota cabin. Colin. Before. There's trees and a lot of them. Pine, spruce, fir. They hold on tight to their green needles. Around them, the leaves of oaks and elms wither and fall to the ground. It's Wednesday. Night has come and gone. We exit the highway and speed along a two-lane road. She holds on to the seat with every turn. I could slow down, but I don't, because I don't want to get there. There's hardly anyone on the road. Every now and then we pass another car, some tourist going below the speed limit to enjoy the view. There's no gas stations, no 7-Elevens, just your run-of-the-mill mom-pa shop. The girl stares out the window as we pass. I'm sure she thinks we're in Timbuktu. She doesn't bother to ask. Maybe she knows. Maybe she doesn't care. We continue north into the deepest, darkest corners of Minnesota. The traffic continues to thin beyond two harbors where the truck is nearly engulfed in needles and leaves. The road is full of potholes. They send us flying into the air, and I curse every single one of them. Last thing we need is a flat tire. I've been here before. I used to know the guy who owns the place. A crappy little cabin in the middle of nowhere. It's lost in the trees, the ground covered in a crunchy layer of dead leaves. The trees are little more than barren branches. I look at the cabin, and it's just like I remember, just like when I was a kid. It's a log home overlooking the lake. The lake looks cold, and I'm sure it is. There's plastic lawn chairs out on the deck and a tiny grill. The world is desolate, no one around for miles and miles. Exactly what we need. I glide the truck to a stop, and we get out. Yanking a crowbar from the back, we make our way up a hill to the old home. The cabin looks abandoned, as I knew it would be, but I look for signs of life anyway. A car parked in back, dark shadows through the window. There's nothing. She stands motionless beside the truck. Let's go, I say. Finally, she climbs up the dozen or so steps to the deck. She stops to catch her breath. Hurry up, I say. For all I know, we're being watched. I knock on the door first, just to make sure that we're alone. And then I tell the girl to shut up, and I listen. It's silent. I use the crowbar to jimmy the door open. I break the door. I tell her I'll fix it later. I slide an end table before the door to keep it closed. The girl stands with her back pressed to a wall made of red pine logs. She looks around. The room is small. There's a saggy blue couch, an ugly plastic red chair, and a wood-burning stove in the corner that doesn't give off an ounce of heat. There are photos of the cabin when it was being built, old black and white shots with a box camera, and I remember being told by the guy about it when I was a kid, about how the people who built the home a hundred years ago picked this location, not for the view, but for the row of pine trees just east of the cabin that shielded from the driving winds, as if he had any way of knowing what thoughts ran through their minds, those people, dead by now, who built the home. I remember, even back then, staring at his greasy receding hairline and pockmarked skin and thinking he's full of shit. There's the kitchen with mustard-colored appliances and linoleum floors and a table covered in a plastic tablecloth. Dust covers everything in sight. There are spiderwebs and a layer of dead Asian beetles on the windowsills. It smells. 
Get used to it, I say. I see the disgust in her eyes. I'm sure the judge's house would never look like this. I flip the light switch and test the water. Nothing. The cabin was winterized before he took off for the winter. It's not like we talk anymore, but I keep tabs on him anyway. I know his marriage fell through, again. No, he got arrested a year or so ago for a DUI. I know that a couple weeks ago, as he does every fall, he packed his shit and left. Back to Winona, where he works for the DOT, clearing ice and snow off the roads. I yank a phone from a phone jack and, finding a pair of scissors in a kitchen drawer, cut the wire. I glance at the girl, who hasn't moved from the door. Her eyes are fixed on the plaid tablecloth. It's ugly, I know. I step outside to pee. A minute later, I return. She's still staring at that damn tablecloth. Why don't you make yourself useful and start a fire, I say. She puts her hands on her hips and stares at me, with that god-awful sweatshirt from the gas station. Why don't you, she says. But her voice shakes. Her hands shake. And I know she's not as fearless as she wants me to think. I stomp outside and bring in three logs of firewood and drop them to the ground beside her feet. She jumps. I hand her some matches, which she lets drop to the floor, the carton opening and matches falling out. I tell her to pick them up. She ignores me. She needs to understand that I'm the one in the driver's seat, not her. She's along for the ride, so long as she keeps her mouth shut and does what I say. I yank the gun from a pocket and attach the magazine, and I point it at her, at those pretty blue eyes that go from sure to not so sure as she whispers to me, you've got this all wrong. And as I cock the hammer, I tell her to pick up the matches and start a fire, and I'm wondering if this was a mistake, if I should have just handed her over to Del Mar. I don't know what I expected from the girl, but this sure as hell isn't it. I never figured I'd end up with an ingrate. She's staring at me. A challenge, seeing if I have it in me to kill her. I take a step closer and hold the gun to her head. And then she caves. She drops to the floor and with those shaking hands picks up the matches, one by one, and drops them into the cardboard box. And I stand there with the gun pointed at her while she scrapes one match and then another against the striking surface. The flame burns her fingers before she can start a fire. She sucks on her finger and then tries again. And again, and again, she knows I'm watching her. By now, her hands are shaking so much she can't light the damn match. Let me do it, I say as I come up quickly behind her. She flinches. I start a fire without any trouble and brush past the girl into the kitchen, looking for food. There's nothing. Not even a box of stale crackers. What now, she asks, but I ignore her. What are we doing here? I walk around the cabin, just to make sure. The water doesn't work. Everything's been shut off for the winter. Not that I can't fix it. It's reassuring. When he went arise the house, he wasn't planning on coming back until spring. The time of year he goes underground, lives like a hermit for six months of the year. I can hear her pacing about, waiting for someone or something to come barreling through the front door and kill her. I tell her to stop. I tell her to sit down. She stands there for a long time before she finally backs a plastic chair against the wall opposite the front door and drops down in the seat. She waits. It's apocalyptic watching her sit there, staring at the front door, waiting for the end to come. Night comes and goes. Neither of us sleeps. The cabin will be cold by winter. It was never meant to be lived in beyond November 1st. The only source of heat in the cabin is a wood-burning stove. There's antifreeze in the john. The electricity has been shut off. That I fixed last night. I found the main breaker and flipped it back on. 
I literally heard the girl thank God for the 25 watts given off by an ugly table lamp. I made my way around the periphery of the cabin. I checked out a shed out back that's filled with a bunch of crap nobody's ever seen and a few things that might come in handy, like a toolbox. Yesterday, I told the girl she'd have to piss outside. I was too tired to deal with plumbing. I'd watched her walk down the stairs as if she was walking the plank. She hid herself behind a tree and slid down her pants. She squatted where she thought I couldn't see, and then, because she wouldn't dare touch her ass with a leaf, she opted to air dry. She only peed once. Today, I find the main water valve and slowly let the water in. It sprays at first, then begins to flow normally. I flush the toilet and run the sinks to get rid of the antifreeze. I make a mental list of things we need. Insulation and more duct tape for the pipes, toilet paper, food. She's pretentious, smug and arrogant, a prima donna. She ignores me because she's pissed off and scared, but also because she thinks she's too good for me. She sits on the ugly red chair and stares out the window. At what? Nothing. Just stares. She hasn't said more than two words since morning. Let's go, I say. I tell her to get back into the car. We're going for a ride. Where? She doesn't want to go anywhere. She'd rather stare out that damn window and count the leaves falling from the trees. You'll see. She's scared. She doesn't like the uncertainty. She doesn't move, but watches me with fake courage and deluded defiance when I know she's fucking scared to death. You want to eat, don't you? Apparently, she does. And so we head outside. We get back in the truck and take off for Grand Marais. I make a plan in my head. Get out of the country soon. I'll leave the girl behind. I don't need her slowing me down. I'll get a flight to Zimbabwe or Saudi Arabia, some place where they can't extradite me. Soon, I tell myself. I'll do it soon. I'll tie her up in the cabin and hightail it to Minneapolis for a flight before she has a chance to spread my face all over Interpol. I tell her that I can't call her Mia. Not in public. Soon enough, word will leak out that the girl's missing. I should leave her in the car, but I can't. She'll take off. And so she wears my baseball cap and I tell her to look down. Don't make eye contact. It probably doesn't need to be said. She knows more about the gravel than me. I ask what she wants me to call her. After enough hesitation to start to piss me off, she comes up with Chloe. No one gives a damn that I'm missing. When I don't show up at work, they'll assume I'm lazy. It's not like I have friends. I let her pick out chicken noodle soup for lunch. I hate it, but I say okay anyway. I'm hungry. We get about 20 cans. Chicken noodle, tomato soup, mandarin oranges, cream corn. The kind of food you find in a survival kit. The girl realizes this and says, Maybe you don't plan to kill me right away. And I say no. Not until we've eaten the cream corn. In the afternoon, I try to sleep. These days, it doesn't come easy. I get an hour here, an hour there, but most of all, I'm wakened by the idea of Dalmar coming after me or the cop showing up at the door. I'm on the lookout, all the time, peeking out every window as I pass, always looking behind me. I barricade the front door before I sleep, glad to find the window sealed shut by some idiot with paint. I didn't think I'd had to worry about the girl trying to escape. I didn't think she had it in her. I let my guard down, left the truck keys out in plain sight, and that was all the encouragement she needed. And so I'm sound asleep on the sofa, hugging the gun when I hear the front door slam. I'm on my feet. It takes a minute to get my bearings. When I do, I see the girl fall down the second half of the stairs down to the gravel drive. I run out the door, screaming, irate. She's limping. 
The truck door is unlocked. She gets in and tries to start the ignition. She can't find the right key. I can see her through the driver's window. I see her pound a fist on the steering wheel. I'm desperate. By now, she slides across the front seat and out the passenger door. She takes off into the woods. She's fast, but I'm faster. The tree branches reach out, scraping her arms and legs. She trips over a rock and falls face first into a pile of leaves. She gets up and continues to run. She's getting tired, losing speed. She's crying, begging me to leave her alone. But I'm pissed. I grab her by the hair. Her feet continue to run, but her head snaps back violently. She lands on the hard earth. She doesn't have time to cry out before I'm on her, all two hundred and some pounds crushing her slender frame. She gasps, begging me to move. But I don't. I'm mad. She's crying wildly, tears streaming down her face, mixing with blood and mud and my own spit. She squirms. She spits on me. I'm sure she sees her entire life float before her eyes. I tell her how stupid she is, and then I hold the gun to her head and cock the hammer. She stops moving, becomes paralyzed. I press hard, the barrel leaving a mark on her head. I could do it. I could end her life. She's an idiot. A damn moron. It takes every ounce of goodwill I have not to pull the trigger. I did this for her. I saved her life. Who the hell does she think she is to run away? I press harder with the pistol, dig the barrel into her skull. She cries out. You think that hurts, I say. Please. She's begging. But I don't listen. I should have handed her over when I had the chance. I stand up. Grab her by the hair. She bawls. Shut up, I say. I drag her by the hair through the trees. I shove her ahead of me and tell her to move. Hurry up. It's like her legs just don't work right. She trips and falls. Get up, I snap. Does she have a clue what Delmar would do to me if he found me? A bullet in the head would be the easy way out. A quick and easy death. I'd be crucified. Tortured. I push her up the steps into the cabin. I slam the door shut, but it bounces back open. I kick it shut and throw the table down to keep it closed. I yank her into the bedroom and tell her that if I hear her so much as breathe, she will never again see the light of day.